Our Bible passage today is from Matthew 10, 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? As uh, Sister Mona shared in her prayer, uh, today we have our guest speaker, our friend, uh, Pastor Steve Allen. I know him as a church planter. Um, I'm going to just read his bio as he starts to come up. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, Pastor Steve has served as Compass Church's SBC Church Planting Missionary Catalyst for the North American Mission Board SEND Network since 2003. Uh, SEND Network works to plant all kinds of churches for all kinds of people all over Metro New York City. Uh, Steve also serves as volunteer associate pastor of missions and church planting at Bible Church International, a Filipino multi-ethnic church in Randolph, New Jersey. Uh, in other words, he's, he's our church planter. <laughs> uh, pastor Steve and his wife, I, I understand that uh, Sister Gina is here with us in, in Solomon Schechter. Uh, please welcome her. Pastor Steve and, and um, has been married for over 35 years and has three children and one son-in-law. Uh, let's welcome Pastor Steve and let's um, um, prepare our hearts for what God has in store for us today. Is it on? All right, good, good, good. I want to say thank you to Pastor Daniel for the kind uh, invitation and to uh, Sister Solgi for all of uh, the help in uh, getting, uh, getting here this morning and getting oriented to and prepared for our time together. Um, I, uh, Solgi, I, I made one mistake in not asking uh, for a minor correction to uh, my, or to my uh, bio since uh, I was last with you all. Uh, Gina and I, as Pastor Daniel is aware, made a um, kind of a, a pretty profound transition right around the first of the year in that uh, after 15 years with one congregation, longer than she or I had uh, been members of any church in our entire lifetime, transitioned uh, out of Bible Church International uh, back into more of a recent church plant. And so we've been serving in the uh, East Brunswick uh, Rutgers University area uh, with one of our, well, one of the church plants that I helped to get started uh, about five years ago, and we're helping with the Point Community Churches there, a couple of churches that we've assisted, and uh, are just really excited about the work that they're doing, um, but uh, in a lot of ways, we can empathize with uh, this brave new world that we're all living in, right, where we're uh, meeting in rented spaces, and week by week, month by month, trying to figure out uh, is it, uh, can we justify um, renting and uh, is it, uh, do we feel safe meeting back together again? 
and everything. But uh, when uh, when the invitation was extended, uh, I, I couldn't envision anything but being with you in person. And so thank you again for that kind of invitation. And for those of you who I'm not able to see in person this morning, I do look forward to that time when we're able to be uh, together once again. This is our first Valentine's, uh, socially distanced. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I don't know what this day means uh, to you. This is a day when young and old will be celebrating uh, in their own way, uh, love and uh, affection. Um, and uh, I guess for the old, socially distanced uh, is, is not really anything new for <laughs> Valentine's Day. For, for, uh, for the younger, uh, Valentine's, uh, socially distanced Valentine's Day may be something new. And I was actually looking at a, a website uh, just a little bit earlier uh, about uh, some ideas for socially distanced Valentine's Day date ideas. Uh, that are romantic and safe, right? And so uh, they had ideas ranging from pasta with grandmas, uh, where you can uh, dial into a real uh, Italian grandma who guides you step-by-step step on how to make pasta at home uh, with your loved one, or you can take a mixology class and learn how to mix uh, alcoholic drinks together uh, in the comfort and safety uh, of your, your home or your pod. Uh, you can play games together, which uh, my daughter and son-in-law and wife and I, and probably our youngest daughter at home will do with our kids in Atlanta. Later today, we'll play some games together, uh, some Jackbox games or some other sort of uh, group games. Um, other ideas. Uh, here was one. Visually tour the gardens by the bay in Singapore. Um, boy, I can't imagine. I, I was able to do that in person. I can't imagine um, that... Uh, that 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 would that would really probably break my heart to have to do that in uh, virtually. But if you've never done it in person, uh, virtually is probably really really good. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, as I was just kind of pondering um, what love and love and infatuation, how it might be celebrated on a day like Valentine's Day. You know, the old maxim came to mind that imitation is the highest form of flattery. In fact, I was even joking with Pastor Daniel a little bit about that this morning. But you know, when we're infatuated, that maxim or that adage, when we're infatuated, we imitate the object of our infatuation, right? Um, here's an example for you. When Gina and I first met and married, this is a, a pretty trivial example, but when Gina and I first met, I was much more willing to patiently endure uh, musicals and rom-coms, right? Uh, and, uh, and to be engaged with, uh, with her in those things. And she was much more willing to uh, take an active interest in my football games and that sort of thing, uh, in my sci-fi, right? And my sci-fi interests. But we still make an effort, by the way. Uh, we'll still uh, indulge each other and share in those some of those kind of things together. We'll still sit together through uh, things that aren't one or the other of our first preferences. Um, but uh, thank God for modern technology, right? So we can sit and uh, I can be checking the scores or on my sports message board while I'm enduring a rom-com and she can be sitting uh, checking her Instagram or playing Candy Crush while she's enduring a football game and trying to figure out what uh, constitutes uh, a first down. And so, uh, you know, imitation though, 
it's the highest form of flattery. And that's really kind of where I want to go this morning. And that's really why uh, the substance of this morning's scripture is so concise. It's really very brief, but there's a lot to unpack there. And I say all of that really tongue in cheek, again, just to make the point that imitation is the highest form of flattery. The greatest honor that we can pay to another is to emulate them in some way. And so uh, our text again this morning, Matthew chapter 24 verses, uh, Matthew chapter 10 verses 24 and 25, really the, the words of Jesus, and we're going to really focus on the words of Jesus this morning. I typically like to stick with one passage of scripture and, and, and deeply and in, in a lot of detail unpack that one passage of scripture, but we're going to sort of survey the words of Jesus uh, this morning along a singular theme, which is uh, when is enough enough as it relates to being a disciple? And, uh, you know, as, as we began this new year, I know we all begin this new year with hopes and aspirations, uh, with burdens and things that we uh, hoped that uh, God might uh, renew or make us better at, or that we might aspire to be, um, you know, more skilled at, uh, whether that's some sort of resolution, whether you would call it that or not. Uh, but, but the new year kind of provides a little bit of a reboot, doesn't it? And and I know for me, uh, it provided some of those opportunities and uh, to, to kind of just re-examine my discipleship, my relationship with the Lord as a disciple. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning uh, that was read just a few moments ago, Jesus, just to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has just called his 12 disciples as his first followers in preparation for beginning his public ministry. And notice in this passage that he calls them and then he sends them uh, in close succession. Jesus makes it clear in this passage that his disciples will encounter difficulties uh, and that they may not always be well received. They will encounter persecution and he wants them to know that this is true if, right, if they truly resemble their master. And today, though, I don't want to focus particularly upon the persecution that Christ's followers may encounter, because we know that's very much true. And in some parts of the world, um, it's happening as we speak even much more uh, prevalently than maybe we're acquainted with on a firsthand basis. I don't want to so much focus on the persecution that we as followers of Christ may encounter. I do want to focus upon Jesus' assumption that those who follow him would imitate him, okay? And so, uh, again, to, to remind myself even uh, that we're really focusing upon the words of Jesus. I've, I don't usually, uh, in my own notes, my manuscript, which by the way, I forwarded to Pastor Daniel and Sulgi. I haven't shared a lot of those in the outline this morning, but I'm really accustomed to just sharing my manuscript, having come from a church that's a first and generation, first and second generation immigrant church. I'm, I'm very accustomed to just sharing my entire manuscript. So um, you feel free to ask for those or to access those if you want to dig back into anything that I say that um, maybe you don't quite catch this morning. But in my notes, again, this morning, I'm, I'm very accustomed to just typing in black and white, right? Um, but I wanted to be really reminded of the words of Jesus uh, this morning. And so, you know how in the scripture so many times there, you, maybe you even have at home or in your hands a red letter edition. I have one right here before me uh, this morning. But in my notes, I've kind of highlighted the words of Jesus in red. 
And in the words that were read just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 10, the disciple will be like his teacher. The servant will be like his master. These were the words of Jesus. And as we have embarked upon a new year, I want to ask you to consider with me, whether it's for the first time or whether it's just as sort of a refreshing of our memories, uh, what is it to be a disciple? What is it to be like our master, like our teacher? And I ask that question because I think there's really a lot more there for us to consider than we might imagine. There, there are two dangerous traps, you know, when we consider as believers what it means uh, when we consider living the life of a disciple. There are two dangerous traps, I think. One is we set this incredibly high bar as if to perpetuate as if to sort of perpetuate this idea that a disciple is a special category of Christian, right? Um, you know, that uh, I'm not just a Christian, I'm a disciple, you know? Um, but the second is this sort of trap where, wherein we set this shamefully low bar in assuming that discipleship is merely a matter of fact when we say that I'm a Christian, so I must be a disciple, right? And I belong to a church, therefore, of course I'm a disciple right? And what we need to ask ourselves when we think about Jesus and how Jesus defined discipleship is, what is the standard? When is enough enough? And a disciple, if we're to really look at the words of Jesus, and I hope just to kind of whet your appetite this morning, and again, I really, I really encourage you, if you want to look at my notes, just to dig in and maybe use those uh, as a starting point to launch more deeply, because we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning in a superficial kind of way. But uh, when is enough enough? A disciple is not a special category of Christian. A disciple is a Christian. But calling ourselves Christian doesn't necessarily mean that we're faithfully pursuing a life of devotion to Christ. Would you agree with that? This is, however, exactly what it should mean. And this is really the point that I'd like to drive home and that I would like for us to find agreement with and resonance uh, with uh, Jesus' teaching this morning. And so here's my main point. Throughout his teachings in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Throughout his teachings in the gospel, Jesus provides us with plenty of guidance in understanding what he expects of those who follow him as disciples. A disciple is one who abides in his word. A disciple is one who bears much fruit. And a disciple is one who has love for one another. And you could make the case that there's more to being a disciple than this. But I challenge you to find, to make the case that discipleship includes anything less than these three things. And so, again, as we reference and as we uh, commend ourselves to the words of Jesus this morning, uh, let's look again at what, when is enough enough? What does it mean to imitate Jesus Christ in submitting to him as a disciple? And first, let's say, as a, let's, let's look at as a disciple of Jesus, it's enough that you and I abide with the Lord. It's enough that you and I abide with the Lord. In John chapter 8, verse 31, a passage of scripture that you, you might well be familiar with, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed upon him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Get that. Did you catch what he said? If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Everything in our relationship with God always 
always, always begins with spending time with the Lord, practicing his presence, if you will. Uh, I have a friend who has actually begun a podcast where he talks about practicing God's presence. Uh, and it's, it's really important to think of it in those terms because I would contend that this is likely an area where most of us struggle, right? Is practicing the presence uh, of the Lord, especially in a place like New York City, a place that's just buzzing with energy. Now, listen, I know that that energy has been tempered and withheld and constrained as of late. Uh, I remember when I first started serving in uh, Metro New York City, we moved here from Buffalo, New York in 2003. And one of the very first conversations that I had with my uh, wife, she was, uh, we, we, uh, we were finishing the school year and trying to sell a home back in Buffalo in 2003. And I remember having a conversation with Gina over the phone and uh, she asked me something along the lines of, so, you know, what's it like? How is it? And everything. And I said, I love it. People walk so fast. There's so much energy uh, and, you know, so much creativity and, 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 uh, and, and you're just stretched. Uh, and of course, we know that, you know, that, that is, it is energizing, right? And it is also a grind. It can grind you down. Um, but, uh, but it's also just this frenetic pace and this frenetic energy uh, that can kind of crowd out anything like uh, this stillness and this presence uh, of abiding with the Lord. And so to just camp out quickly on, on that word abide, to abide means to stay, to remain, uh, to continue, to wait for, and to wait for with expectation, to wait for with expectation. Uh, it's uh, the passive activity or the act of passivity, if you will, that willfully refuses to be distracted from uh, the moment at hand, from the moment that you're in, in which you find yourself. And when we commit ourselves to abide, to wait, to linger with expectation over God's word, uh, then the Lord speaks to us. He does. And how many of us want to hear God speak to us? We recognize his voice when he speaks to us. Yeah, we begin to recognize his voice when, uh, when we spend regular time in communion with him and uh, and, and this becomes a sweet time of abiding. And so we practice his presence until it becomes more second nature to us. John chapter 15, verse 7 reminds us that to abide in Christ is to permit his words to abide in us. And he says that this gives us the power to commune with God and to ask in faith, expecting God's response. He says in, in Jesus' own words, red letter edition, right? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Mark records that as Jesus called his first apostles, listen to this, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. And get this, so that they might be with him and that he, he might send them out. Mark chapter three, verse 14. He appointed 12 so that they might be first and foremost with him. And secondly, that he might send them out to preach. 
It was utmost, always utmost in Christ's mind that his apostles, first and foremost, uh, would be his intimate followers, that they would be with him, that they would remain and linger and wait and stay and abide with him, right? And this was, this was a given prior to any instruction, any further instruction, any marching orders that he would give them, prior to any service that he would ask or demand of them, prior to any sending uh, that there would be or any ministering that they would do on his behalf, he chose them that they would be with him. And so what is the significance of this for us today? How skilled would you say we are at abiding or lingering or waiting with attentiveness and expectation? Um, not going to ask for any testimonials this morning. Um, but how skilled would you say we are at waiting or lingering or abiding with attentiveness and expectation? Uh, I read uh, a little study, just a sample study this uh earlier uh, in the week, said the average human attention span is now shorter than that of a goldfish, right? Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but we heard the old adage that, uh, uh, that that's kind of used, uh, the attention span of a, of a goldfish is kind of a, um, a, a sort of a snap, um, a brief sort of a attention span. Um, but, I, but, but seriously, this was a, a recent study by Microsoft Corp that found that the average human attention span has fallen from 12 seconds in 2000 for uh, or around the time that smartphones hit, right, uh, hit the market, to eight seconds today. And the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds, okay? So, you know, we live moment to moment, don't we? We can hardly bear to sit through a stoplight without checking our Instagram or answering a text message. Uh, a lot of us love wearable technology, don't we? With all of these widgets on the screen where we can just easily access the news or the weather or social media feed. Um, we, love, we love the push notifications that we get from these things. Uh, why? Because we live in this moment to moment to distracted moment existence and world. You know, while I was typing, while I was composing this paragraph last week, uh, I, I guesstimated maybe 90 seconds composing those last few uh, sentences on my computer. There were no fewer than three notifications that popped up on my computer. There were two emails and there was a text message. And I didn't answer any of them, but because I had push notifications on, I knew who they were from and I knew what they were about in the two to three distracted seconds that I acknowledged them, right? Goldfish, total goldfish. Uh, we, we don't know how to abide. We've unlearned how to abide or linger with each other anymore. We're always in such a state of semi-distraction, and we've learned to just kind of accept and, 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 and give each other that, right? Um, in the worst cases, we glamorize it as a skill, and we call it multitasking, right? It's expected of us. Um, in worst cases, uh, we glamorize it and uh, in, in, in worst cases, maybe sometimes we'll even uh, refer to it with the acronym ADD. You know, ADD used to be and still is, right? Um, a, a genuine disorder from which some people suffer uh, to live productive lives because of their lack of focus. But, you know, we use it almost as a badge of honor to say, oh, you know, excuse me, my, my, my ADD kicked in because my team can't function effectively without me, right? Right. Uh, and, and we almost wear it as a badge of honor 
Some of you are multi. Some some of you are uh, shifting away from worship right now, right? You're 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 uh, you're you're maybe switching between apps on your phone uh, because you're in your comfortable living rooms or uh, your comfortable seats. And I know because I've done it too, right? Um, and and it's almost as though we can't help ourselves because we've unlearned how to abide if we ever really learn. But part of my um, one of the things I feel like God's been teaching me in the early weeks of this year, he's been reteaching me, retraining me, uh, is, is in rediscovering stillness. And I'm, I'm very convicted that abiding in the Lord, it's a long lost talent. It's a long lost skill and art for so many of us. And after a few weeks of prayerful consideration last year, uh, Pastor Dan, I, I, I don't know whether I told you, I, I agreed to begin leading a men's discipleship group on Staten Island. Uh, now, I, I've told a few of you already, I live in Jersey. Um, and so Staten Island is uh, an expensive and, and, and not easy commute for me, especially in the winter, um, especially on a really slashed travel budget because of COVID things and stuff. And so, uh, but I've made a weekly commitment to be there with these guys and to show up prepared uh, because we've all agreed to read a minimum of five uh, passages every week and to reflect upon those things in our journal, as well as to do some scripture memory together. Uh, and it's a little comical how many excuses we can come up with uh, for being unprepared when we come together. Um, but we're learning together how to abide with the Lord once again and to hold one another accountable. But in fact, two things, I think, the mutual accountability and the daily communion with the Lord have been so rewarding in, I think, retraining us how to linger over our time with the Lord linger over our readings in the book of Genesis so far. We've begun memorizing John 15. And the simple message, listen, the simple message that I hear over and over and over again, the Lord reiterating to me throughout Genesis and John and uh, the Gospels is Jesus saying, uh, the Lord saying, walk with me, talk with me, listen to me, trust me. And these were such common themes and common rhythms with Noah and with Abraham, with the patriarchs, with the 12 apostles. Why are they not with us? Especially if we call ourselves disciples. And as simple as it may sound, Jesus says, it is enough. It is enough. It's all that we need to spend time each day abiding in God's presence through prayer, through reading the Bible, through meditation upon God's word, um, through, uh, through personalizing them in our lives each day, not because it's a, a tick off of a duty uh, that we're expected to do each day, but because it's, it's a fortifying practice that the Lord knows that we need in our lives. And so it's vital to our relationship with the Lord. It's essential to keeping our distracted, challenging lives centered on him, right? Uh, and framed in an eternal perspective. So uh, it's enough that we abide because as disciples, this will be foundational to the next point, which is uh, bearing much fruit. It is enough that you bear fruit as Christ's disciple. As a disciple, it is enough that you and I bear much fruit. And while you could probably reference several scriptures, John chapter 15, verse eight, is the one where I think Jesus speaks very pointedly when he says uh, that a disciple is one who bears much fruit. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit 
and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says uh, that fruit bearing, it's proof of concept, right? It's proof of concept. If you claim to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, there will be proof. There will be evidence to support the claim in what he calls, in, in, in the form of what he calls fruit. And so let's talk about fruit bearing for a moment. And, uh, and by the way, again, if you want to, this may be the best place where you'll want to reference my notes because this is where I found that uh, there were just so many places to go in this passage. And, uh, and I'm just going to reference a lot of different scriptures that we're not going to be able to dig into. But, um, you know, I'm not a farmer or an agriculturalist. Um, I would even hesitate to say that I have a green thumb or a passing knowledge of how to garden. I've never really made that a uh, hobby of mine. But as a teacher... Uh, with years of theological training, uh, I can dig into the scriptures with you, and I can observe some of what the scriptures teach us about uh, what the word fruit means and how it is used in scripture and what it means to bear fruit. And so uh, here's, here's some of what I observed, by the way, that any of us could observe. Uh, the word we translate in English as fruit uh, or fruits is used in the New Testament alone some 60 times, and 75% of those some 44, 45 times were used by Jesus himself when he talked about bearing fruit. And so uh, 75%, right? 45 odd times in the gospels, Jesus uses the phrase or the words to bear fruit. And so often when we, uh, we do this, right? I'm sure we've all done this. I know I've taught this as a, as a pastor. So many times when I teach about bearing fruit, uh, I want to take you to Galatians chapter five, right? Fruits of the spirit. Um, so often when we discuss the meaning of the word fruit, I want to take you to Galatians chapter five. I want to talk to you about the character traits of a spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-filled Christian, uh, follower of Christ, disciple. Uh, those character traits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And get this, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ will most certainly evidence these character traits, uh, especially the more that we, the more time we spend with the Father day by day. And all of these are qualities certainly that our society needs more of today. Wouldn't you agree? But these words in Galatians, these are the words of Paul, not the words of Jesus. Now, and I don't mean to say that they disagree at all, but what I, as I told you before, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to focus, on, focus upon the words of Jesus. And it was Jesus who used the phrase to bear fruit 75, uh, 75% of the time in the New Testament. And so I really wanted to understand what was it that Jesus meant when he talked about bearing much fruit? And so if we're to make special application uh, of Jesus' specific meaning and instructions, uh, I, I did a little bit of an in-depth study, and I just want to kind of bring back to you some of my report, if I could. Here's some things that we simply cannot afford to miss if we call ourselves disciples, okay, with regard to fruit bearing. And this is not going to be in your slides. Again, it's in my notes, and you can feel free to access those. Um, Three things, three major things and three sub-things underneath them. But Jesus' repeated statements in the Gospels, number one, described a disciple as a fruit-bearing follower of Christ. Jesus' repeated statements in the Gospel, all those 45-odd times that he talked about bearing fruit, described a disciple as fruit-bearing. And what he said about uh, a disciple who is fruit-bearing, he said they are known by their fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 6, 
He said that they are maturing in his or her fruit bearing. And this is, you can read about this largely in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Um, But also you can read about this in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. So they're known by their fruit. They're maturing in their fruit bearing. And they're also gatherers of fruit for eternal life. So a disciple is someone uh, who is known by their fruit, maturing in their fruit, and they're gatherers of fruit for eternal life. In other words, they're someone who seeks to make other disciples, John chapter 4. Secondly, Jesus' repeated statements in the gospel described uh, an unfaithful disciple, and uh, it's important for us to note that as well. They described an unfaithful disciple. Jesus said three things at least about an unfaithful disciple. He said they bear bad fruit, bad fruit. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 12, and Luke chapter 6. He also said that uh, an unfruitful disciple bears no fruit. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 13, and John 15. They bear bad fruit, but they also bear no fruit. And then thirdly, and you might find this interesting, uh, an unfruitful disciple is one uh, who bears fruit, but who robs God of his glory. Robs God of his glory. Matthew chapter 21 and Luke chapter 3. You see, Jesus talked about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, he talked about bearing fruit with a repentant heart, with a humble heart, with a heart that points people to the source of that fruit. So again, Jesus' repeated statements in the gospel, they describe uh, a disciple as fruit-bearing, they describe an unfruitful disciple, but then, of course, thirdly, uh, Jesus' words in the scriptures describe a fruitful disciple. And here's how Jesus described a fruitful disciple. He described a fruitful disciple as one who hears and understands God's word uh, in the parable of the sower, Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. So one who hears and understands God's word. A fruitful disciple is also one who dies to self. And boy, there's a lot we could unpack there. Uh, But that also has to do with bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and not robbing God of his glory um, and submitting ourselves to others. So uh, dying to self, but also a fruitful disciple is one who is pruned, right? One who recognizes that there's some times when God takes things away from our lives in order to make us more fruitful, all right? So again, forgive me for not camping out on any of that and just giving you kind of some broad, um, uh, some, some broad swath sort of observations there. But you know, in, in observing all those different instances in which Jesus refers to fruit bearing uh, in his disciples, it strikes me that a plant doesn't necessarily have a lot of control over how much fruit it bears biologically, right? Again, I said I'm not an agriculturalist, but, uh, you know, I, I, I like to believe an apple tree can't control how many apples it bears. Um, uh, but what, what is biological fruit? Uh, it's excess growth, in essence. I mean, that's a, the non-scientific way I would put it. It's excess growth. When a plant has more than enough, right? When is enough enough? Well, when a plant has more than enough, when a disciple has more than enough, to sustain itself. It overflows in fruitfulness and health such that fruit is born uh, and and that health expresses itself in fruit outside of the plant. 
And a plant cannot will itself to produce fruit. It needs enough nutrients. It needs enough water. It needs enough sunlight. And so, folks, what we can control as disciples, we may not be able to control the number of people that we lead, uh, that we convince to come to faith in Christ. Maybe we would say, I, I can't necessarily will myself to a certain level of maturity in the faith. You can, however, feed yourself upon God's word as a disciple. You can, uh, you can avoid the cares of the world choking out God's truth in your life. Um, and you can bring God glory by the way that you live out your life as a disciple. You can draw strength from the S-O-N, sun, right? Like a plant draws its strength from the S-U-N, sun, by spending time with him. And, you know, we're going to grow and bear fruit by imitating Jesus and by nourishing our spiritual lives with his word and, with, uh, and through communion with him. You know, the psalmist, and a lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this passage, but the psalmist uh, paints a detailed picture of what this looks like in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, where he, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But get this, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so in season and out of season, when there's rain and when there's not rain, this tree that's planted by streams of water, which has its roots sank deeply down and extended out to uh, the living waters uh, or to the water table, maybe even below, uh, when there's no water running above ground, uh, is going to sustain itself through those seasons. You know, there's so much in Jesus' words that we can't begin to unpack this morning uh, about fruit bearing. But um, allow me to summarize, if I can, and then we're going to conclude with our final point. In the eyes of Jesus himself, this is kind of, in a nutshell, what I was able to, to uncover in um, my reading of Jesus' statements about fruit bearing in the life of a disciple. In the eyes and the words of Jesus himself, his disciples are those who are Christ-imitating, ever-maturing, disciple-making followers who fortify themselves upon his word, submit themselves to his hand, and who die to ourselves so that God alone receives glory from our lives. Now, I know that sounds like a really super high bar, but it begins with abiding, right? Let me read it again. In the, in the words and eyes of Jesus himself, his disciples are those who are Christ-imitating, ever-maturing, disciple-making followers who fortify themselves upon his word, submit themselves to his hand, and who die to ourselves so that God alone receives glory from our lives. Thirdly, as a disciple of Jesus, you know, it's enough that we abide with him it's enough that we bear much fruit, and it's enough that you and I love one another. Boy, you could take any one of these points, and you could say, boy, Pastor Steve, you bit off way too much for one message, uh, but, uh, but we're just going to hit some highlights. As a disciple of Jesus, right, when is enough enough? It's enough that you and I love one another. 
Uh, Again, in Jesus' own words, John chapter 13, verse 35, he clearly states one of the key standards by which his disciples will be known. By this will all people know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I think most of us, especially on a feel-good day like Valentine's Day, right? Most of us are okay with this on the surface. Uh, we look around. This is, a, this is a pretty small circle in the room here today. I can't spin the camera for you around uh, here this morning. Uh, but we could probably look around the room here this morning and think, yeah, yeah I love these people, right? Um, these are my people. Um, but have you ever noticed that the moment that we begin to broaden the circle that includes one another, or my people, right? The more difficult it becomes for us to live this standard, to really embrace this standard and to live like we love one another. You know, in one small circle, we might say, I love these people. These are my family. In another circle, we might say, I love these people. They look like me, right? What could, you know, I mean, what could be wrong with that? They look like me, you know? And I know I'm pretty good. Uh, or I love these people. They think like me, right? That's kind of where we live today. Uh, but what happens when we begin to draw the circle just a little bit bigger, right? Can we still say, I love these people, even though, man, I don't understand their ways, right? Or I love these people, even though their appearance or their behavior is sort of off-putting, right? Or maybe a little foreign or strange to me. They're a little weird. Or I love these people even though they, they vote or strongly disagree with me on some other things. How broadly did Jesus draw the circle? Before you come at me here, uh, how broadly did Jesus draw the circle, right? I mean, again, we're focusing upon Jesus' words this morning. How broadly did he draw the circle? By this Will all people know that you are my my disciples if you have love for others in your family? Did he say to those who first heard this, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love other Jews? If you love other followers of me? All of those things were getting ready to be challenged. Uh, As soon as Jesus uh, was in the grave and risen, this church was going to be scattered amongst the Gentiles, right? But before we conclude our time together this morning, I want to take a brief glimpse, and um, I think Sister Mona alluded to this in her prayer this morning. Uh, I want to take a brief glimpse about how broadly Jesus drew his circle uh, of of whom he felt that we as disciples are responsible to act lovingly. Uh, If we're to imitate him, how broadly do we draw our circle? Uh, And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Uh, verses 25 through 37. I'm not going to read it. Our time is getting away from us this morning. But uh, in essence, when approached by a highly educated lawyer, it's important for us not to lose the context, right? Because this isn't just a feel-good story. Uh, It isn't even just a good moral lesson uh, for us. It it was an actual occurrence, right? Uh, A highly educated lawyer approached Jesus, and he wanted to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe there was some sincerity in the question, but the scripture tells us that he was was trying to challenge Jesus a little bit. When Jesus replied to him, so you're a smart guy. What's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, 
And, th and then he surprisingly added, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you know, Jesus probably was sort of like, wow, you know, you've answered correctly. Do that and you'll live. But Luke goes on to tell how the lawyer wanted to justify himself, right? And don't we all? We all want to justify ourselves, right? Yes, th this is yes. We all want to justify ourselves, uh, whether we believe it or not. And so he, he asked Jesus, so who's my neighbor, right? You see the question? He's asking, how big do I need to draw my circle to be justified in God's sight? Who am I responsible for loving? Where does my circle of responsibility for loving others end? Jesus then tells this, the parable, only then does the parable begin. And Jesus tells this parable, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning in which a priest who's a servant of the temple, right? You know who priests are, generally speaking. Then a Levite whose entire clan, their entire family uh, had been dedicated and assigned the care of the temple. They couldn't own property or anything. That was their role uh, in Jewish life was to maintain the temple. Um, had passed along by this man who had been beaten and left for dead, beaten, robbed, and left for dead uh, along the road. And as the brief story unfolds, we see that only a half-blooded Jew, whom, uh, Jew and Samaritan, uh, whom they just referred to as a Samaritan, uh, who was despised and who didn't know how to worship properly and who was unclean in Jewish eyes, only this Samaritan, uh, after the priest had passed and after the Levite had passed, uh, proved willing to draw their circle large enough to include this beaten man this unclean man, this man whom if they helped might have put him in danger in some way. Uh, only this unclean Samaritan was willing to draw a circle large enough to include this vulnerable brother. And so what is so important and what we cannot miss in this passage is that Jesus' main point, if you take it back to the conversation of the lawyer was, if you would love the Lord as you should, then you must love your neighbor as yourself. If then, if you would love the Lord as you should, then you must love your neighbor as you should. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this was his answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, this is the part where you drop the mic. But Jesus essentially said, draw your circle large enough. Love those, uh, love even those neighbors as yourself. Go and do likewise as the Samaritan did. And this is what you must do to inherit eternal life. This is how you, this is proof of concept. This is how you prove your love for me. The proof of concept, the evidence for those of us who say we love the Lord lies in our loving behavior of our neighbors. Jesus used this illustration uh, of benevolence, uh, of loving the vulnerable. But you know, in reality, our responsibility to love one another, it includes drawing circles that include the vulnerable as well as the privileged, uh, the lovely as well as the unlovely, the friend and the enemy, the oppressor and the guilty. Uh, and you can find instances in the gospel where Jesus acted and taught consistently uh, with each and every one of those, uh, loving each and every one of those. And we've sadly reached a place in our society and sometimes in our churches wherein we feel justified or even enthusiastic, right, in contributing to division, in contributing to drawing lines and drawing circles that are way too small, as smaller than Jesus would have us draw them. 
and that label or cancel people or groups as though somehow we have some valid reason for withholding our loving behavior towards them. Wow. You know, I, I'm just so convicted when I think about uh, when I think about that and I ask God, please reveal to me anywhere where I've done that. Uh, please convict me when I'm doing that. And certainly we must stand for what we believe to be God's truth. And sometimes that will cause us to be rejected by those around us. Sometimes that will cause others to draw their own circle and say, I can't be part of your circle. But we never have the option of rejecting or writing off those who are created in Christ's image, do we? Um, whether black lives or blue lives or red voters or blue voters or vulnerable or privileged, you know, when we draw the circles around whom we feel responsible for uh, at, acting loving, lovingly towards, when we draw those circles smaller than Jesus would, then we've begun to behave in ways that do not imitate the Father. And that's not enough. That's not enough to characterize us as his disciples. And, you know, again, I know there's so much here that we're not going to get into, but gospel proclamation is a fruit of a disciple maker, but gospel demonstration is also the fruit of a disciple maker's life. Uh, and they're two wings of the same airplane. They really are. Gospel demonstration and gospel proclamation. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren says it this way. Why is it that as Christians, we can recite John 3.16, but yet we remain unfamiliar with 1 John 3.16? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A lot of food for thought, I think, for all of us uh, in this day and time. Um, but I want to leave you just with uh, one concluding, um, just, just summarizing uh, thought, and then a prayer. You know, one who abides, one who bears fruit, one who loves his or her neighbor as self. Uh, a disciple may be more than those things, but we certainly cannot call ourselves disciples if we're willing to settle for being less than these things. According to the very words of Jesus, uh, it's enough for a disciple to be like our Lord. Uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery, uh, emulation is the highest honor we can pay to our master. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you challenge us to a deeper walk with you. Thank you, Father, that, uh, Lord, that uh, you just long for us to be like you because you know that the fruit of that will be uh, a love and a compassion for one another uh, that uh, evidences itself in so many things, Lord, that, uh, that, um, Lord, are, are, are heavenly. And uh, Father, uh, even as we uh, commit ourselves to you today, Lord, may we uh, recommit ourselves to abiding with you, to beginning, Lord, just by committing to be with you, to be still before you, to hear from you, uh, and to walk with you, Lord, that we might be fruitful and that we might act lovingly uh, towards those around us. God, uh, thank you for this church, and thank you, Father, for uh, your word. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to challenge uh, each and every one of us uh, to, uh, to, uh, to be salt and light, uh, and, and, Lord, to begin a work in our hearts uh, that, uh, that overflows our homes and our lives uh, with good, transformative fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.